Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Welcome to the other hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to the Other Hand podcast. Chris Johns is on the other side here, but we also are doing something a little bit different today. We've invited a guest to join us, Chris Gray, who's an emeritus professor of organization studies at Royal Holloway, the University of London. He was previously a professor at Cambridge University in Warwick. More recently, I think we're seeing well we're seeing a lot of him on his Brexit blog which I would highly recommend. Um I know it has a lot of Irish followers anyway, but because we obviously in this country have a huge interest in what's going on on the Brexit front. But Chris's Brexit blog is is absolutely fantastic. You can also get it the accompanying on Twitter at at Chris Gray Brexit. That's G R E Y. Uh, rather than the Irish version G R A Y, so I'd strongly recommend for anybody that hasn't read that blog to take a look. Chris, if I may start, and just reading one of your more recent blogs, you were talking about Lady Chatterley's Brexit, and you spoke about the near taboo in the Labour and the Conservatives parties on mentioning the economic consequences of Brexit. Yeah. Um, would you like to elaborate on <laughs> what you're talking about there? Hi, Jim, and, and hi, hi, Chris. It's you know, really kind of you to uh, invite me to to chat. Well, <laughs> Lady Chatterley's Brexit. You know, so this was a sort of reference to the obscenity trial in 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 nineteen sixty, and uh, where the, the 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 kind of the prosecuting barrister sort of opened was sort of saying something about you know, is this a book that you'd want your 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 children or or, or even your wives or your servants to read? And it sort of connoted this sort of very you know even even then very dated kind of victorian patriarchal kind of idea about 
you know, not not talking about not talking about sex because that was the the issue about the book was it had you know so many sexual references in not talking about sex in front of the the children and the servants and and, and, and even the wives. So I just thought it was a kind of a a slightly kind of tongue in cheek metaphor, if you like, for the way that yeah, there just seems to be this this silence, this taboo within the sort of political class about the about the uh, about the consequences of Brexit. But 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 also sort of tried to say, and this is where the Lady Chatterley article sort of ends, was sort of saying, you know, but actually, look, you know, the kids and the wives and the servants, they already know all about sex. And so you've got this weird sort of disjuncture between what's going on in terms of a certain kind of national kind of conversation in terms of particularly what a lot of journalists uh, and, and commentators are sort of saying, um, and then this kind of refusal, if you like, on the part of the political class to talk about it. Now, I think the interesting thing is that I think that refusal to talk about it is, is beginning to fracture. I think, I mean, this is there's different ways of telling this story, and I think it's it's quite a it's quite it's it's, it's a it's a story with four strands to it, um, and I'm not sure they're kind of interrelated, so I'm not sure which one comes first. But I mean, one key issue I think is the consequences of what happened uh, with the mini budget in uh, under Liz Truss, under Liz Truss's short-lived premiership. Because I think that did two or three things. That firstly, it kind of tested almost to sort of destruction this side, this very Brexit idea that sort of belief could trump reality. That had different components, but you know, one was this idea of well. You had these sort of true believers, that policy, that budget was very much came out of the sort of Institute of Economic Affairs type analysis and sort of saying, look, you know, if you take that, then then it doesn't matter about the Office of Budget Responsibility, it doesn't matter about Bank of England, it doesn't matter about the Treasury. These are just, you know, these are just the kind of the remain of establishment. And we can and we can do we we can go with the true belief. And if we go with true belief, then we then that will win. And then associated with that the idea oh, that the UK is big enough and strong enough to kind of to buck the markets, you know. And that really was tested, you know, to to absolute destruction because because when it came to it, the markets, we know markets are a complicated entity. They're not just you know, the market, but, 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 but the market verdict was, was so negative. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is that in the course of her short premiership, she made economic growth the central thing. So then you get Sunak. And Sunak comes to power only because of that, only because of the collapse and failure of the trust regime, and only on the basis that what he's going to bring is economic competence and economic realism. So as soon as that becomes the terrain of the debate, it becomes much, much more difficult to stop not talk about Brexit. Because as soon as you start making economic reality the central term and not oh you know we believe and we're Britain's wonderful and we all this sort of boosterish kind of stuff that you got from Boris Johnson or this very ideological stuff about about how it's just a matter of sort of you know a, a sort of belief and, and so on once you move from that and say and, and say this is about economic realism there can only be one outcome of that because as soon as you talk about economic realism unless you're going to be unrealistic then you can't see anything other than Brexit being a failure. I mean, that doesn't mean that there aren't still, you know, people particularly of the kind of Patrick Minford type persuasion and associated with that kind of thing, you know, who will still 
forevermore, whatever happens, we'll kind of say, oh no, Brexit could be a great success if only we did X, Y, and Z. But the vast consensus of it is that. So, so those are my first two things. Failure of the mini-budget and why, and Sunak coming to power on the basis of economic realism. But then I think that behind all that, and having going on a sort of kind of in the background for some while, is firstly, really since the end of the transition period, which is, if you remember, Michel Barnier referred to that as economic Brexit. You know, so yes, there'd been political Brexit, Britain left the EU. It wasn't until the end of transition you got economic Brexit. And ever since then, I would say, in the UK, there's been a kind of a battle for the narrative of has it been a success or has it been a failure? I think that by the time we got to about the summer, and certainly now, that narrative had settled in terms of public opinion towards a clearer and clearer view that Brexit had been a mistake. And so we can see in the latest kind of figures, if you strip out don't knows, which have been about 12% all, all the way through, then we now have a situation where 61% of the population think that Brexit was a mistake and 39% of the population think it was the right thing to do. Not only has there been a majority for thinking it was a mistake uh, for really many months now, but it's a growing majority. Okay, so that's the third thing. You've got the view that Brexit was a mistake. And and then the fourth thing is that since about the beginning of the year, say, there has been a growing political salience of the economy as the leading economic issue of the time. And so in the most recent survey, 70 percent of the public say the most important issue is the economy. And what those opinion polls also show is that 53% of people think that Brexit has had a negative effect on the economy, simply on the economy. 12% think Brexit has a positive effect. The rest of them are either don't knows or they think that it hasn't had any effect one way or the other. So if you put all of those things together, you can see why now there's just the beginnings of the breaking of this conspiracy of silence over over Brexit, because you've got a situation where where um, where economic realism is meant to be the central political issue, where most people think Brexit is a mistake, where most people think the economy is the most important issue, and where most people think that Brexit is economically damaging. So I think that's where we are. And then it becomes very difficult for it not to be talked about. Are you surprised that so many people still think it was a good idea, that it's still over thirty, over a third? No, not really, because I think that because I think there's a there's a, there's a there's a bedrock figure of people who will always think that for all time. Whether that will always be thirty nine percent, I don't know. But my guess is it will never get lower than thirty percent. So and I Chris, think it's getting towards its bottom. Do, does it make any difference that the mood is changing? It makes a difference to the fact that there is, for the first time, the beginning of more discussion you know there's been over the weekend the idea of would the government you know is, is the government think you're moving towards a more swiss style relationship i mean we can we can talk about that report and what it meant sunak has immediately denied it anyway and the challenge here is more for labor i would say because because i don't think that there's any way that 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 the current conservative party under sunak or anybody else in fact you know for that matter can actually do very much in terms of moving uh, away. But the thing is, is that independently of the question of whether it gets talked about, the reality of the economic relationship with the EU is going to have to become a matter of governmental attention anyway, because of the fact that built into the trade and cooperation agreement is a five-year review. 
So whatever is going on in the newspapers or going on in, 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 in the media and so on and so forth, that discussion is going to happen between the UK and the, uh, uh, the EU, but not until 2025, I suppose, but, but it will begin to happen in 2024, right? So that is going to mean there is, that there is going to be at least the scope for some, there's obviously only a limited scope, but there, but there is scope within the existing TCA framework for a closer economic relationship. So the question then is going to be, is it going to be politically possible for a British government to uh, to actually uh, agree a closer relationship within that TCA framework? Well, not if it's still a Conservative government, I think, but potentially if it's a Labour government. And what would it mean? Well, it would mean uh, potentially things like a mobility chapter, which would be particularly relevant for services workers, travelling musicians, all of that kind of thing, which, remember, was offered by the EU and rejected by the UK. And I suppose the other you know, potentially very important thing could be around the sanitary and phytosanitary uh, alignment. And again, I mean, this seems to be something which is is ruled out. I mean, Sunak has said just today that that, that he won't do anything that aligns regulations. Well, if you don't align regulations, or in the jargon, dynamically align regulations, because this has all become very complicated. Because the Brexiters say, "Well, we want to, uh, well, well, we want to have regulatory equivalents, but we don't want to have regulatory alignment." And, and for most people, you know, maybe we'll scratch their heads and say, "Well, what's the difference?" Uh, but obviously, as you guys will appreciate, the difference is, is is with regulatory alignment, then you follow EU rules as they change, as opposed to having your rules accepted as being equivalent, even if potentially different uh, to EU rules. Those are big prizes, potentially. They're not the biggest prizes because they're nothing, you know, they're nothing like single market membership, but they are significant and they're certainly significant. The SPS issue, the sanitary and phytosanitary issue, is, you know, is, is potentially, you know, the easiest and best way of unlocking the conundrum of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is maybe something else that we will... But I suppose, so, so okay, so, so there's the question of TCA review, but then there is the sort of the bigger question of whether uh, of whether some form of single market membership could be agreed, um, and I think we have to be kind of quite, quite careful here because I mean the UK uh, sort of media and political narrative all along has been so insular that there's always seems to be this kind of assumption which would be you know well if we decide we want this then we can have that and if we decide we want that we can have that I mean you know, he, this would have to be agreed whether with the EU or whether with EFTA I mean there's always been questions and different views about well for example if we talk about EFTA you know questions about whether the UK would be a sort of destabilizing influence on that quite how it would work and certainly on the on the the idea of the the sort of Swiss model kind of notion, we know that this is a very unsatisfactory relationship from the EU perspective, multiple bilateral kind of deals. And so this sort of idea that, you know, if Britain decides, oh, well, we want that kind of relationship, then the EU are just going to say, oh, yes, uh, well, we will enter into that. I mean, this is very, very, you know. One of the the many legacies of Boris Johnson is, I think, that is toxic, is is that running away from complexity, running away from the fact that this stuff is very hard, running away from the fact that this stuff is very detailed. So in that regard, I had a look at the EU's literature on the Swiss arrangement. And there is a page on their website that, or sorry, a document on their website that from memory ran to over 30 pages giving details of this arrangement. And those 30 pages were just a list of web links 
to the more than 100 bilateral treaties that the EU has with Switzerland, going into mind-numbing detail. It is an extraordinary edifice that, as, as I, I would put it more strongly than you, Chris, that the, the Swiss deal wouldn't be offered to Switzerland today if they were starting from scratch. And the idea that the UK could possibly go anywhere near a Swiss deal is pure fantasy. And I think it's that fantasy that still grips far too many people in the UK. And, and, and that worries me a lot, is that, that, that the, the confronting of reality that you rightly talked about earlier on as being so necessary for us to make any progress is still frighteningly absent, in, in, in my view, across a whole range of dimensions. So that apart from the pure economics of Brexit, which, which you talk about very eloquently and the, and the impact that it has had, I think that the effect that it's had on the public square in terms of the dialogue that we do have these days, it is still cakeism. It is still not confronting the reality. I haven't seen anybody in, since this Swiss-style suggestion first appeared over the weekend say that whatever happens, whatever happens now, if we do make these steps to be closer, call it Switzerland, call it something else, it's going to take years of really tough, really hard negotiations. It's very complicated. Very complicated. And also another aspect of this, or even without renegotiation, is the question about the various kinds of instability that and uncertainty that means for businesses and, and for and for business investment. Because, But just to go back and pick up in, in, on, on your point about this sort of lack of realism and cakeism and so on, is that I noticed in those reports over the weekend, and I don't... You know, it was very unclear how how well sourced they were, and, and there was a quotation which said something like, "Well, we think that this could be possible because of the fact that because it, it would be it would be in the business interests of both sides, businesses in the UK, businesses in the EU." And I thought, Jesus, are we really back? This is like the discussion in two thousand and sixteen about about the German car makers and the French cheese makers and the Italian prosecco makers and so on, and this sort of notion of, well, well, and almost, you know, they need us more than we need them, or, or at least they need us as much as we need them. And so, you, yeah, I agree with you. You really kind of felt as if, not recently, but a few years, a few, over the course of the years on the, on the blog, I've quite often used this kind of idea of the debate about Brexit in the UK going around this kind of Merbius strip, you know, the kind of endless kind of strip. And, and, it's, and, and you see it over and over again, and sort of, you know, sort of at the time when everything was sort of being negotiated, it would sort of be, oh, well, Norway is in, is in the single market and we could be like that. And they, oh, no, oh, but that's freedom of movement. Oh, yeah, but, but Canada, they don't have freedom of movement, but they've still got access to the market. I said, yes, but access doesn't mean the same as being a member. Of the, and so you would just go around this circle or this, this endless strip of, of of all these same debates recurring over and over again. So I think you're right. But it's still, I mean, I still come back to the point that that even though I don't think this sort of Swiss notion of, you know, Swiss-style Brexit is going anywhere, not least, by the way, because immediately the Brexiters, uh, the kind of European research group people, went completely mad and started saying, you know, uh, and, that's the, and that's the political kind of obstacle. But still, I would come back to the fact that it, it is at least of note to say that here we are, six years, more than six years after the referendum, and suddenly now opening up again is this question of, so what should the relationship be? And so it does show us, if nothing else, that Brexit is not some kind of settled, has not reached some kind of settled end state, which is economically and politically durable. Chris, it's been a really an unusual three years. We've had 
two years of COVID disruption. We've had eight or nine months of Ukrainian disruption. How can you isolate the impact Brexit is having on the UK economy? And, and, and how do you measure the economic failure of it at the moment? It's difficult and it always would be difficult. I, I think you guys are both economists and, and we, we know the difficulties of separate out, separating out these factors. But we can look and say, you know, Britain is, the UK is not the only country that has experienced COVID and not the only country which has experienced the Ukraine or the consequences of the Ukraine war. And so you can look, you know, I think the, the best known example, which I think is, although the Brexiters disagree, but I think is quite robust, is the model that John Springford, as the um, chief economist, I think is his title, at the Centre for European Reform think tank. He has this kind of doppelganger model, as he calls it, where he takes a kind of a basket of economies that have have a, had a sort of similarity to the UK's before Brexit, and then looks and see and to say if we look at them and then look at UK economic performance, how do they differ? And we can ascribe that difference roughly to Brexit. But the other thing about this is that even if you forget about everything else and just ask the basic kind of question, which is if you introduce new barriers to trade with the partner with whom you do 50% of your trade, will the impact will the impact be to increase trade volumes or to decrease trade volumes? And there's only one answer to that. And it's kind of astonishing to see these guys from with sort of backgrounds in very much free market economics, far more far more free market orientated as an article of faith, believe in free in, in free trade and free markets, sort of tying themselves into these enormous contorted knots to somehow try to demonstrate that increased trade barriers do not have any impact on the volume of trade that's done. And the underlying here, issue here, I would say, is actually one of political accountability. Because if you think of what these Brexit guys were saying at the time of 2016 and all of the forecasts, the economic forecasts of, of what impact Brexit would be. And all the time they're saying, as they still do, oh, well, you know, of course, uh, you can't predict the future. Forecasts are wrong. How can you possibly know what's going to happen? Uh, and so they're saying, so, so, OK, so you don't know. You don't know until it happens what the effect is going to be. But now we begin to see the effects. They turn around and say, ah, yes, but you can't possibly say what those effects are because you're only doing it on the basis of measured against a counterfactual of what never happened. And so if you take that logic seriously, it's saying, well, you can never, you can never know in advance whether an economic policy worked because you can't predict. And you can never know afterwards if an economic policy worked because there's no counterfactual. And so what they're really doing is saying you could never test, a, test an economic proposition at all. Right. So, of course, actually, it's just a way of avoiding any kind of scrutiny or accountability. And if you then add to that what is emerging as their key answer to the economic question and sort of say, ah, oh, well, you can't possibly judge as early as this because you've got to wait for 30, 40, 50 years. Well, Jesus, look, if you're already saying or they are already saying, oh, well, we can't separate it out from COVID and from Ukraine. How many other potentially conflicting or, or you know, potentially interacting factors are they going to be in 40 or 50 years? So when they say these things, what they're actually saying is there's saying they're not going to accept any yardstick by which they by which to be judged, other, I suppose, than one invented by themselves. Can I ask, Chris, do you think that the Brexiteers are just so much better than their opposition that they were during the referendum campaign itself? better at the whole PR electioneering thing 
to the present day, present company accepted that we're still not very good at this. And you touched on this. I forget where, in which particular blog you say something like, we know that Brexit, via all of the promises that were made in the Leave Manifesto, was supposed to deliver something called sunny uplands. The debate today, unless you're reading your blog, of course, but the debate today is still successfully framed by the Brexiteers in terms of Well, you've got, on the one hand, people like us saying, you've made things worse. We can have a debate about how much, but we know that the sign is negative. And those that say, well, no, it hasn't. And that's what we end up throwing rotten tomatoes at each other. We've made things worse. No, you haven't. And that's it. Whereas the right debate, which isn't had, is that we should be saying to them, show me the money. Where are these sunny uplands? And we never have that debate. No, you're absolutely right. Yes, I, I did write that recently, and it is extraordinary, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, it's like, so there is, you know, was Project Fear right or was it wrong? But Brexit was sold on a positive perspective. It wasn't meant to be just sort of, you know, not too bad. Or so, in a way, you're, you know, maybe you're right to say that that that, that they've been quite successful in in, in kind of in, in in framing the debate. But but ultimately, I would say that what we can, what we're seeing now is how. Not just the how economically unsuccessful Brexit was, but actually how politically unsuccessful it has been, and how unskilled, in a way, their skillfulness was. And what I mean by that is that clearly what they did was successful in two thousand and sixteen, and it was successful primarily in terms. Well, it was successful in that they won the vote, right? So you know that's that's the that's the not by a huge amount. We shouldn't forget. You know, I mean, it wasn't a landslide, but you know, but they but then they won the vote and they won it against expectations. So that was successful. But they did it, but they did it in a way that was setting up. It was setting up its own kind of failure because of the fact that because of the fact that because there was no particular form of Brexit that was specified, that it meant that they didn't have they didn't have a political consensus about what Brexit was going to be. And they're still suffering from that. Because and that's why all these debates are still are still kind of are still going on. But more than that, we talked about that I think Chris last time I was on, on, on the podcast is what the book is about. But I think there's even there's more than that to it than that, which is that having won well they probably didn't expect to win, but having won, the onus in a way was on them to particularly because the vote was so close, to build the political consensus and to build a belief in that Brexit was the right kind of course. And they have clearly failed to do that in terms of because the Brexit prospectus was not was not, oh well, vote Brexit and you'll have a permanently divided country. Now they would say, oh well it's because the Remainers didn't accept the vote and so on and so forth. But if they could come forward and say they would could convincingly argue and demonstrate to people uh, the Brexit had been a success, that they wouldn't be in this difficulty now. The figures would not be more and more moving to people thinking that Brexit was a mistake. There would be more and more, perhaps there would still be a division, there would probably always be a division, because in the same way as there's probably a floor of 30, 35% who will always think Brexit is right, there's probably a floor of 30, 35% who will always think it was wrong. But for any policy, whether it's Brexit or anything else, you have to build the consensus for it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I always personally thought it was barmy the notion that you would walk away from free access to a massive market on your doorstep and and to do trade deals with countries thousands of miles away. And we've seen quite a bit of critical analysis and criticism of the trade deals that have been done with Australia and New Zealand, particularly um, by the architects of some of those trade deals, people like George Eustace. How do you interpret how that game is going? Well, the thing about what George Eustace said just confirmed what we already knew, I think those of us who have been following it, is that that they were so keen to show that there was a Brexit benefit. So so they they wanted to make these trade deals as quickly as possible. And as a result of that, they effectively conceded, this is what Eustace says, they conceded exactly what the Australians and the New Zealanders wanted to the detriment of British of British of British farmers and that was and that was to do with the symbolism of the trade deals and the idea that okay so now Britain has got an independent trade policy but all of the emphasis was put on the political symbolism of the independence and none on the economic realities of the trade aspect of what a trade policy sort of you know should be for but i think the bigger point about this is that well, maybe that is the bigger point, but but another point about this is that even even with the you know, even if these had been the best trade deals in the world, they were never going to be worth very much in terms of you know just as in more terms of sort of GDP percentage. I mean, the New Zealand deal they reckon may actually have a negative impact on the British economy, but even at its best, it might have had an impact of sort of you know maybe sort of you know percent something like that over 15 years. And even a US deal, a UK-US deal, would be may, maybe worth something like 1% or 2% of GDP over 15 years. And so these gains are really very negligible compared with the loss that you sustain. And of course, the reason for that is that, well, if we were to t- be argue devil's advocate, if we were Brexiters, we would say, you're wedded to an old-fashioned model, model of trade, a gravity model of trade, where you do more trade with your with your nearest neighbours, we can get away from that. But of course, empirically, it's it's not true. I mean, empirically, the gravity model of trade does hold. You know, countries do more trade. The rule of thumb is as, as distance doubles, trade halves. And that, interestingly, remains the same for services um, and isn't really changed to anything like the extent people might think it would, it would be by the internet or by kind of electronic trading. Part of this was a kind of a fantasy. And I think the other thing about it was that they thought that quite wrongly thought that there was a kind of somehow a a, a a contradiction between being a member of the EU single market and also being a global trading country, as if you couldn't as if you couldn't be both and one held you back from you know from being the other. Whereas in fact, you know, they do or they can 
uh, the country like Germany, for example, Germany in particular, actually, that the one actually enables the other. You don't have to give up one in order to uh, in order to have the other. And but, but I think the other kind of huge intellectual failing of of of, of, of the Brexiters is that although on the one hand they were saying. Oh, you're, you know, they say to their critics, you're wedded to an old fashioned model of trade where distance is, 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 or proximity is so important. But on the other hand, the Brexiters seem to operate with this absolutely kind of 19th century, if you like, model of trade in which what matters were tariffs and tariff barriers to trade as opposed to non tariffs. And so effectively, what they have, and, and particularly for a services economy where you know, actually what matters for services trade, it, which of course doesn't have tariffs on it. Uh, you know, the only thing that matters is non-tariff barriers. I don't think it was necessarily dishonesty. I think it was just really just a sort of a certain kind of ignorance, a certain kind of romanticism, a certain kind of I don't know what you would call it exactly, but but as I say, it wasn't necessarily dishonesty, but it was just flat wrong. And of course, that's the reason why. Okay, you can do free trade deals with Australia, with New Zealand, maybe with other countries, but by and large, those are going to be deals which are about tariffs. But fundamentally, you don't break the non-tariff barriers around services trade unless you have shared regulation, you know, not just sort of mutual recognition, but shared regulation. And and of course, that's the key problem for the Brexiters with the single market, because as soon as you say, and I think it's again because they've got a dated view of the market where they think the market is something that, it, that exists without regulation. And they don't seem to understand that, particularly for services, that regulation is what creates markets. And if you have shared regulation, then, of course, that's going to impact on the Brexiters' version of sovereignty. Because if you have shared regulation, you have to have, A, a mechanism for regulation setting, and B, a mechanism for regulatory enforcement. And necessarily, that's going to be transnational, because otherwise you haven't got shared regulation. And so their view of what trade was was both dated and naive in its own terms, but also led them into this terrible kind of trap whereby they had to trade off sovereignty against trade. And so that's what you see in the TCA all the time. David Frost and Boris Johnson were prioritising their version of sovereignty. Absolutely fascinating. I am conscious of time, Chris, and so I will let Jim conclude with whatever question or questions he wants to ask. I've just got one very general question. I'd like to broaden this discussion a little bit away, not away, but embrace something a bit more than Brexit. Because my feeling or my instincts, I hope some analysis as well as, a, as an economist, tell me that Brexit, if it had been done to an economy that was operating like a Rolls Royce, would have been damaging, but wouldn't have been as damaging as it A, has been and B, is likely to be in the future because the economy wasn't operating as a Rolls-Royce. In fact, it was a pretty knackered jalopy from, from a whole host of perspectives. I was listening to something being broadcast by the Resolution Foundation over the weekend, in which this one of the fundamental problems facing the UK economy is that old cliche is that we always want um, American-style taxes and European services, and we've actually managed to, in reality, deliver the opposite and that if you are in the top half of the income distribution, you're about as well off. The median middle income person in the UK is now 20% worse off than their French median equivalent. And if you are at the bottom of the UK income distribution, you are 40% worse off than your French equivalent. 
and that this inequality, American-style inequality that we now have in the UK, was first observed in the 1980s, actually, and then was made worse by Austerity 1.0, the Osborne-Cameron effects. And it's all these sorts of things. It's not just about inequality. It's about the related things of um, lack of productivity growth, lack of uh, real investment in the economy. Uh, All the things that seem to be going wrong are going wrong. And Brexit on top of that, it's not a straw that breaks the camel's back argument, but it because it was a bloody big straw, it was a bale of hay, if you like, has added to a whole lot of other problems. And one of the prob- one of the issues that I think um, people like us, people like me anyway, or natural optimists think that when something terrible is happening or when something is bad is happening, something will come along to fix it. My real fear now is that we're in such a situation that we're facing an appalling vista where there is nothing out there that is going to come along to fix it. You mentioned the Tory party is incapable of doing the things necessary to fix some of these things, not least Brexit. But I look at all of the things, the steps that you would advocate, one might advocate to fix some or all of those things. And there seems to be a blocking faction on the backbenches of the Tory party against every single one of them. And that any chance that we have of making this country a better place from a Brexit perspective or any of the other things that one might mention, it's pretty bleak. Or can you argue me away from that uh, pessimistic perspective? Well, I tend to be pretty Eeyore-ish, so I'm probably the worst person to try to argue out that. No, look, I mean, you know, I agree. Long-standing issues about productivity and inequality are, are part of the thing. I think the other, you know, the huge, the huge thing which is which is really insufficiently discussed in relation to the UK is the implications of having an aging population and. That you know that again you know comes to the fore in relation to Brexit because of because of the whole kind of immigration um, debate, but but not just but it's not just that about you know whole sets of issues about future costs of pensions, future costs of health uh, and social care and so on and so forth. That I think is 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 you know is not being faced up to at all, and and, and maybe most fundamentally, which again Brexit has has revealed, although it wasn't the cause of, is this extremely kind of dysfunctional and creaking political system and constitutional arrangement, which really kind of, um, and by which I mean a variety of things, but including, you know, first past the post elections. And, you know, in a way, a weird situation that we had first past the post for Westminster elections, and yet we had proportional representation for European elections, which was really what allowed UKIP, the anti-EU party, to become so kind of to become so important. And then we have this kind of semi-set of devolutions, but without a proper federal structure, which is what then enabled uh, Say that you know it certainly was was one of, was one of the one of the reasons that made it possible to hold a referendum that didn't actually require the consent of each constituent part of the United Kingdom. But again, you know, it, it, you know, it reflects this kind of, you know, this this uh, you know, maybe it's partly to do with 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 being you know uh, all countries are old countries, but an old country in terms of in terms of its constitutional arrangements, that everything was all sort of like some kind of Heath Robinson machine tied together with you know bits of string and. And ceiling wax and so on and so forth, and it's then very kind of vulnerable to, uh, as we saw, for example, with the prorogation of Parliament, is very vulnerable to being used and abused in various kinds of ways, and so you kind of feel as if there needs to be a, almost by definition, because of that problem, it's very difficult to see what is the political route 
to actually discussing and, and addressing it. And so I confess, you know, I don't I don't know the answer to that. But what I would kind of say is that is that whatever happens, you know, things do not just remain the same. Yes. And so one of the things that we see with you know with, that we see with Brexit is that it has undoubtedly exacerbated the push towards the breakup of the United Kingdom. It puts some. I'm not certainly not saying it's guaranteed Scottish independence if there was a referendum, but it certainly put new boosters under that possibility because that really would have been a dead issue had it not been for Brexit because of the 2014 referendum. And then, of course, Ireland, which we haven't talked about, uh, you you would have to say again, not just because of Brexit, because there's demographic issues and other issues as well. You know, but you would have to say that a United Ireland is more likely now than it was before Brexit. And and if and, and, and even if that isn't the case, the questions about the Northern Ireland peace process and Northern Ireland governance arrangements, certainly we can see have been put under significant kinds of stress as a result of Brexit. And in a sense, you know, events events have their own dynamic. Yeah. So although it's not clear what the solution to these things is, the very fact of the onward march of events means that new possibilities and new configurations kind of get thrown up, but of course some of them are not very benign because, of course, you could you know you can easily see also how all of this could lead to a much more virulent form of English nationalism, for example. Chris, you've led me into my final question: the Northern Ireland Protocol. Where to from here? I mean, it's really difficult because, in some ways, despite all the you know the move from Johnson to Trust to uh, to Sunak. Things are really not any different to how they were when Johnson was 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 prime minister. You, you know, you still got this. You so you still got the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill going through Parliament, although it seems to be at a kind of snail's pace. Nothing much is really happening. You still got this basic. You know, you've got a series of technical talks going on, but this is not fundamentally an issue that can be technically resolved. It has to be politically resolved, and you still got the the fundamental tension of. The thing that makes most sense in terms of UK strategic interests is to make a deal which is eminently doable with the EU and which basically involves SPS alignment. It involves accepting some kind of backdoor for ECJ. And um, and that's that's sort of doable as a, as a rational and strategic, as a strategically rational solution to this situation for everybody. But that is remains unacceptable to this blocking, you know, substantial blocking group within the Conservative Party around whether or not they're members of the European Research Group or not. And that hasn't changed. That dynamic has not changed. And so we're still in the situation of, you know, trying to read the noises and the signs and the, you know, the, the tone of what seems to be kind of being said by, you know, by, by, by Sunak and, and other politicians and what is being said, you know, in the EU. And there is this, this sense, there has been this sense that the mood, you know, is a better one than certainly it was when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister. But that doesn't really translate into anything, knowing that that's the mood. It doesn't translate into kind of policy. This can't go on forever, not least because of US intervention. It seems as if people are pretty clear that it can't go on beyond the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which is April 2023. Right. But, but again, you know, I mean, what 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 does that mean? Does that mean 
does that mean making something which is a durable agreement around the around the protocol, or does it mean yet again some kind of fudge, which in six months' time is going to be you know then opened up again? Uh, so as I say, nothing in that dynamic has 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 changed. I mean, again, rationally, you would say. Um, and apparently, you know, this was always Sunak's line when he was chancellor is, well, you know, these are not good economic circumstances to be potentially ending up in some kind of trade war with the EU. And so the economics takes you in that direction. But listen, if economic rationality always won the day, we wouldn't have had Brexit in the first place. Right. So it doesn't really kind of give us uh, any kind of any any kind of diagnosis. And then obviously the other sort of aspect of this is is the internal politics of Northern Ireland itself. Which is enormously complicated, and I wouldn't, you know, presume to to be any kind of expert on it uh, at all. But what I do think is that <laughs> is that um, is that you know how how you know from the beginning analysts were talking about Brexit in terms of the Irish border trilemma. But what has happened is that is that I think the British government have allowed that trilemma to become a quadrilemma by the introduction of saying, "Oh, well, actually, we also need to have the consent of the parties." In Northern Ireland, you know, now, and what they're saying there is is something which they've also kind of taken over from the DUP in particular, sort of saying, well, the Good Friday Agreement means that you need uh, that you need, need cross community consent, but of course, legally that wasn't true. This was a this is a UK treaty, right? It was not something that required. Uh, it was not something that fell within the scope of the GFA of needing cross-community uh, consent, but effectively by 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 accepting the DU proposition that the fate of the Northern Ireland Protocol is tied to the Northern Ireland Assembly and the devolved institutions becoming up and running again, the British government have accepted that there is a fourth leg to. Uh, a fourth leg to you know, you know to, to 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 the Irish dilemma, and for, if that's so, then for as long as unionists say that no form of sea border at all, at all, is acceptable, then actually there isn't a solution. On that note, Chris, that cheerful note, um, I'm just going to thank you very much for for your insights, for your thoughts, for your time. Um, it was absolutely fantastic, and I look forward to posting this as a podcast. I want to mention that the first time we came across each other was when I read your book, which prompted the original getting together on this podcast. And I hope the book has gone very well. It certainly deserved to. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's sold in, in, in uh, decent numbers. And, uh, Excellent. Well, I'm very happy to give it another plug. Um, Thank you. But thanks very much. And um, hopefully we will do this again quite soon. Very happy. Whenever you, whenever you want me back, I'm always here. Cheers, Chris. Thank you very much, Chris. Cheers. Thank thanks you. Very much. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.